Very much mixed feelings as I stand before you today. Just because, quite simply, it's been a tough week. Family losing mother because she falls at home. Hits her head just in the wrong way. Another family losing a, a daughter and Rebecca's sister to cancer that just not, would not respond. Leaving behind a family that needs her. An 85-year-old guy named Wes going and having surgery and doing remarkably well. All is fine. And then the next day, a doctor who's been having surgery and doing surgery on people like President Bush and others said he never had anything happen like that in his 30 years. It's not really explainable. And we don't really need to try to explain it. The grief is real. The loss is real. And our care and concern for those who've lost loved ones is real. So it's normal that we would find our Sales being tossed to and fro, not because we wonder where any of those three are, because we know where they are, but we mourn for our own loss. I can't really see you. I got a little too much light. Somebody back there in the back, these two that are really bright, they don't need to see me. If they can hear me, that'll be all right. This is really hot. And to man half blind, it's really blinding. Ah, now I see you. Thank you. Can you still see me? Well, that's a shame, but it is what it is. <laughs> I probably never will forget Wes's calling card because it was always the same. Every time he would see me, he would do two things, three things, actually. He would hug me. He would look at me and tell me he loved me. And he'd say, I pray for you all the time. And if there was ever anything going on that he wasn't for sure about, he had a simple answer. Well, we'll just wait and see what the Lord wants after all. If I'm not here, I'm there. And if that's the time, that's the time. That's why the topic of this morning is so very important. And it's really exemplified in Wes's life, who I knew much more. I did not really know Miss Alonzo. I did not really uh, know Rebecca's sister. But I knew Wes. And what I, I knew about Wes is important in terms of how I grieve and how I handle this loss, how my brain thinks about it, and how I respond to it. I know that he was a baptized believer. And his baptism was not just a matter of water put on his head, nor was it just a matter of a church rite or ceremony, but rather it was a sign of who he, who he was to become and how he was to live. And so when I ask you today, what is your understanding of your own baptism? It is along that line of not wanting to quote one verse in the scriptures, but rather to try and make sense out of all the verses in the scripture that deal with baptism because it's not quite as easy as we like to think. John's baptism, John the Baptist's baptism was for repentance and turning toward the kingdom of God that was coming. 
And many people in our own lives today understand their baptism primarily about becoming a part of the body of Christ, but more importantly about their sins being forgiven and about their, if you will allow me to be just a little bit trite, punching their ticket for heaven. It's about accomplishing something that is done and helps them to live into their future, all of which are good things when they are done in the proper perspective. But there's a danger, I think, adrift in the church of the past 50 years in these United States. And that is that we begin to understand our baptism as a time we have arrived somewhere, as a time where something has been accomplished and life can be lived on. It's prevalent in the lives of many Christians that we see in terms of how they are living their baptismal vows out or, in many cases, how they're not living out their baptismal vows. Now, different denominations understand baptism in different ways, and, and that's fine. All, everybody has some of it right, and probably every one of them has uh, tweaks that need to be made along the way, because the Bible's not a neat book. It's not tied up neatly with a bow where everything is simple and cut forward and objective, where you can just write it down, and that'll be true for everybody. And this passage of Scripture that Troy read to you earlier is just exactly one of those passages of Scripture. Because John the Baptist was out there doing what he knew needed to be done, baptizing people and all that goes with that, so that they would repent of their sin and turn toward the kingdom of God. And then, surprise, surprise, up walks Jesus, the man that he knows to be the Messiah, the one sent from God to lead God's people. And then, surprise, surprise, this Messiah walks up to him for Christian baptism, and he almost has a stroke. But the only time we know that is in the Gospel of Matthew. Because in the other gospel stories where they talk about this baptism, there's no conversation. He just comes and receives the waters of baptism. But Matthew, he told a little bit more about the story. He told about Jesus walking up to be baptized, him going, what? I can't, I can't baptize you, dude. We'll contemporize it a few centuries. He says, you know, you, you ought to be baptizing me and everybody else. You're not about water. You're about the Holy Spirit and fire. I, you don't have any need to be baptized, Jesus. Don't you know you're the... Son of God, for goodness sakes. And if he thought it was confusing to him, he should listen to theologians struggle with it for the next two centuries. Because they don't understand it either. Baptism about forgiveness of sins. Why did Jesus get baptized? He was sinless, right? Why the water? What's the deal? Well, it's important that we understand the deal. Because the deal is that baptism is much larger than simply forgiveness of sins. Now, I know... That when I say those things, man, it's really lonely over here. Let me walk over here. Hey. Makes me want to jump up and down and call the kids back for children's sermons up here just to sit and play. But the reality is, when we try to boil down Scripture too simply, and we negate or fail to remember the totality of what Scripture says about some topic really important, that sometimes it can be direct of its meaning. It's like confirmation. Confirmation suffers from this same enigma. Every year throughout my life, I've read things about a story that I read just the other day uh, in a book I was reading. It was talking about a, a family that came to church, and a young boy came to a confirmation, and he attended everything. He answered all the questions great. He studied, did all his homework, went on all the trips. In fact, everything he touched, he was just absorbed in the church, and he never had been before. 
His parents came to church, attended all the parent sessions, came with him to church and took part. And he really seemed to have gotten it. He really seemed to really grasp what it meant to be, to be confirmed, to be a child of God. Then they had the confirmation service. Everything was wonderful and bright. And next Sunday, he didn't come to church. Or the next. Or the next. Or to you. And soon everybody was going, you know how long it takes in some denominations to recognize you're not really there. They, they don't want to bother you. But they figure out that he's not here. And he hadn't been here since confirmation. So the pastor's, pastor just says, well, i got to find out what's going on. So he goes to see the woman. And the mother of the boy said, we're really concerned. We haven't seen, we haven't seen your, your son in church since confirmation. And she said, oh, well, is he okay? Yeah, he's fine. He's doing great. Well, well, we haven't seen you at church. And she said, oh, well, he got confirmed. He's been confirmed. Everything's great now. It was a wonderful experience. And he goes, but this is not an end. Confirmation is a beginning. It's the beginning of him living his life for Christ. It's the beginning of his calling as a follower of God. And she said, what? I, I, I didn't mention that. And the pastor goes back and he says, I know we must have said it a dozen times in confirmation class. You know, I know we must have explained it. How did she not get it? How did her son not get it? How did he get confirmed and not get it? It happens. People have an experience. They have an event. And they don't understand it as a part of a journey on the way to somewhere else. But rather they understand it as an event to be filed away with other events. As something that has been completed. Something that's been done. They don't understand the mentality of, of a Wes. Who's always trying to figure out what he could do. And why his dear wife was often telling him, you're getting too old for that. You need to do less and let somebody else do it. And he would say, no, 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 I can do that. I can do that. And, it, it, of course, that mentality carried over to his home. A limb need to be sawed off in a tree backyard. Where's my ladder and my saw? I'm just 85. My goodness, I can climb that ladder and cut that limb down. He never ceased trying to live out who he was. He understood that baptism was not somewhere where you arrived, but rather a marking spot, a sign, a symbol of where he was going. Too often in the church, we're interested in things that become where we've arrived. You build a new building, what do you, what's your goal? To fill it up. And when it's filled up, what's your goal? Uh... Uh, to add on, maybe, if we're not still paying off the one we're in. Is that really the goal? Just to fill up a building? Or is it to fill up the kingdom? Fill up a kingdom of people who have been baptized and know it. That was just because I had a lot of extra time. I wanted to throw that stuff out there for you. Now, there's a story about a man named Mario who, who was a, a homeless person in New York City. And he lived 
currently in a church shelter, but half of his 60 years he had lived on the street, half of it, until he had found this home in a shelter where he stayed permanently. Well, on his 60th birthday, they had a birthday dinner, and they were remembering his birthday and just congratulating him and telling him. Then several others looked at him and said, I don't believe you're really 60. You don't look 60. Uh, I just don't think you're 60. Now, these were friends who, who re- really thought he probably didn't know how old he was. He'd been on the street so long. And well, he looked at me and said, thinking to himself probably, you know, you don't believe I'm 60? So he reaches in his pocket and he whips out a birth certificate. He said, look here, I am 60 years old. It says so right here. And I, well, I would have never thought it. He reached in his pocket and said, you think you'll see my baptismal certificate? He pulls out his baptismal certificate. As a baby, he was baptized in an Episcopal church in New York City. And though he'd been wandering the streets for 60 years, he still carried that baptismal certificate in his pocket. You got yours with you? No. You got your birth certificate with you? No. It's at home. He didn't have a home. his life but he had a home that he was reminded of every time he looked at that certificate in his pocket I'm going to come back to that but in this story this is one of those times you say I wish I'd have been there I'd like to see the look on John's face no 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 this is all wrong Jesus dude you can't start out this way getting it wrong I can't baptize you that's not what this is about Thank God for how God doesn't leave us just hanging. Although he kind of does, he rarely completely does. In this passage, he does it because Jesus walks, probably walks up closer to John and says, John, it's important we do this. It's important we do it to, in order to fulfill all righteousness. It's important that we do this in order to fulfill all all righteousness. The only place in Scripture where this conversation happens is in Matthew. It's important we do this to fulfill all righteousness. Righteousness had strong meaning for the people of that day as well as today. It, it had to do with seeking and, and following God. It had to do with being in relationship with God in a good kind of way. And it was personified when Jesus lived that out in his life here on earth. So Jesus says, humbly, it's important we do this. Jesus was willing to subject himself to something he didn't need because he was not unclean. He had not sinned, but he was willing to do it in order that he might identify with humanity and their needs in order that we might see him and understand that it is important for us to subject ourselves humbly to the requirements of righteousness. Now, here's where I could really get carried away. And I could really get down on this topic. And I could get down on it because I've lived most of my life with a generation that doesn't get how to submit yourself to authority, even if you don't understand it, in order to just follow it. Anybody feeling me out there? You know... He wasn't going to argue with God or with John and say, I don't need this, but rather he submitted to it because it was part 
of his relationship to God and in his life with him. Too many people today are trying to figure out what they don't have to submit to rather than trying to figure out what it is they need to submit to. Too many people today are too tuned in to trying to assert their independence, which we've taught them in the great United States of America, to be totally independent, to be stand on your own, to be the kind of people who really don't need anybody. It's really hard to tell them they need to be more humble. You know, Richard Sherman, you need to be more humble. Y'all know who Richard Sherman is? Some of you do. Some of you are afraid you do. He's a football player. He's a very intelligent young man. He talks too much, and he doesn't sound very humble. He is an enigmatic of a culture, though, that draws people. If Muhammad Ali had been quiet, would we know his name? <laughs> Probably, because he would have still won, maybe, in some of those uh, heavyweight championships. But we remember him because of how arrogant he was, how confident he was, how terrifying he was to other people in the ring. And sometimes we make the mistake of not recognizing how the biblical idea of humility is so central to what it means to follow Jesus. You just can't be arrogant and follow Jesus very far. You just can't be. There was nothing arrogant about Jesus, even though he was God himself. Not arrogant at all. He was willing to submit himself to obediently following all that was required of righteousness for everyone. And that is such an important characteristic. And that is what the relationship about turning from sin and turning to God is about. Our church is arguing about what is sin as United Methodists. We have a hard time defining it sometimes. And even though it may be written right in front of our face, we don't want to accept it because, after all, we are 2,000 years smarter. We're so convinced that certainly something shouldn't be out there that we would have to submit to, even if we don't understand it or like it, that we try to flee from it. Of course, I'm talking about the sin of tithing. You thought I was talking about something else, didn't you? <laughs> sin is sin, and it needs to be forgiven. It is in baptism, forgiven. But more important, and this is going gonna to grate on some of you. You're going to go home and find 97 places in Scripture where I'm wrong. And I want you to find them all. But I want you to remember this one I'm preaching from today. It says for, baptism is not primarily about forgiveness of sins. It's primarily about relationship. It's about relationship. That's why I'm going to miss West so much. Because I had a relationship with Wes. I had a relationship I didn't deserve. And I could not possibly earn. But I benefited from it every time I saw him. You see, all you can do with a guy like Wes is just accept it. His family wanted to do Christmas Eve at home. And he said, go ahead. <laughs> but I got to get the candles ready. Now, as you go along in this story, it doesn't stop there. He submitted himself to be baptized, and then a miraculous thing happens that should be commonplace, whether we're being confirmed or being baptized. 
He went under the water, and when he came up, the heavens opened. The spirit, like a dove, came in and lit upon him. Not that he didn't already have the spirit, but for his benefit and for those there, the heavens opened, and the spirit came in. A voice came down from heaven, and this is so important. This is my beloved son. This is the word new. This is my beloved son. This is the one. This humble man is the Messiah. And I am well pleased with him. Now, the story kind of stops there, but what it means for us doesn't stop there, not by any stretch of the imagination. In this process, the Father revealed to Jesus what Jesus already knew but hadn't possibly experienced it in this way. So he revealed to him, you are my son that you've been claiming all along. You think that's important? Well, it was very important. It's important when our teenagers are into trouble up to their neck and they know that they have nothing to hold on to. Oh, they know what their birth certificate says. They're your child, but they're wondering if you'll still claim them. It's important that at that moment, you look into that rebellious young woman or young man's eyes and you say to them, whatever you have done, you're still my son, my daughter, my granddaughter, my grandson. Whatever your struggle, whatever your mistake, whatever your sin, you're mine. And I will always love you. Every one of us are going to get that chance multiple ways with multiple people, not just family, but others, church members as well. You see, what Jesus received here was a public recognition of his identity as the Son of God. That gives him confidence for the future. That gives him security because he was on his way, according to Matthew, to go straight from there into the wilderness to be tempted before he answers his calling, particular for him. I say all these things to say this to us. It is also our identity. And I've been struggling with that a little bit. I've been struggling a little bit with my own identity as a pastor. You say, why? Because I never pastored a church where I spent so much time doing something that was so important and yet didn't directly relate to what I've been doing for 35 years in the sense of helping that church fulfill its calling. I've been on the defensive, and I don't like it. I'm not a very good defensive player. I'm an offensive player. I'm an aggressive player. I lead churches to fulfill their calling because I believe that's what pastors are supposed to do. And I know that I have allowed myself to be overcome at times by the task at hand that had to be done, and I let them take too much of my time. I let them absorb too much of my thinking. I let my calling get a little bit sidetracked for a period of time in order to care for the pain without remembering what my calling was. Ever happen to you? Ever get sidetracked? Ever get sidetracked by something that seems so important it had to absorb your time? Sometimes it gets so important to us that we can't come to church because this other thing is so important. 
Or we can't come to worship and worship completely because our mind is somewhere else. Getting sidetracked is about being human. And that's why it's important when we come to worship that we sing these songs of praise when our hearts are heavy. It reminds us who we are. I don't need to mourn West in the sense that I'm not going to see him again. My goodness, where is he going to be? He's going to be passing out heavily brochures when I arrive. <laughs> He's going to be making sure all the candles are lit in heaven. He's going to be wearing that big smile saying, I knew you were going to get here, just didn't know when, but I love you. Still, I've been praying for you every day, still. And I'm just going to be saying, I got here as fast as I could. You've got to be so careful because we live in a world that tries to break down our confidence as believers, that tries to tell us that we're not secure because of the things that happen to us. Disease happens, wrecks happen, sin happens, and other people affect our lives. And sometimes we lose our sense of security because we say, why not? I was wanting to get to the hospital in time before Wes went to be with the Lord. I wanted the opportunity to pray and wonder if God would do a miracle. And when I got there, God already, already answered that question. He just passed away. Security shaken. How, Lord, surely, surely you could have fixed this. I, I, I'm sure God smiled or maybe he cried. Thinking, oh, you knothead. He's here with me. What are you worried about? Well, I'm worried about Arlene. Well, she's there with you, right? And all those other lovely people and her big family. Wes is 85. What do you want to do? Watch him suffer a year or two before, before he comes to be with me? Well, yeah. I mean, that's preferable to be suddenly being gone. Or maybe it's not. I don't really know. I just didn't want him to go. Selfishly, I didn't want him to go. But he was baptized. He was secure. He knew his calling, and he always answered it. Now, we know we've been baptized too. We know we're God's beloved children. We know that he looks at us and he's often pleased. But, but I want to say that again because sometimes you, you can get the idea that in churches, we're more about telling you how wrong you are than about how pleased God is with you. God is pleased with you in many, many ways. Are you perfect? No, but guess what? There's a lot of pages in God's books for you that are left there for you to work on the perfect thing. But on every one of them, you should start out at the top by writing down, I don't know how I'm going to do today, but I know one thing. I'm still God's beloved child, and he's pleased with me trying to follow him. We should not be insecure Christians. Those terms are just opposite. How much time have I used? Wow. <laughs> Don't worry, the football game's not that good at noon anyway. So we're loved by God, we're valued by God. And at times the world's going to do these things to you. At times the world's going to look at you and some smart aleck is going to say when you're a young child, you're not very smart. Or, you're dumb. You didn't make a good grade on that test. We're going to get a little older and some group of kids are going to snicker and laugh and look at us and say, you're not part of this crowd. This is the in crowd and you're an outer. 
And it can happen even in churches, can it? We're going to hear people tell us, you're no beauty queen. You can't even be a cheerleader, much less a beauty pageant winner. You're just not pretty enough. You're not athletic enough. You don't play football? Well, you must not be anything. I knew I was something because my mom and my daddy loved me. So when my football coach looked me in the eye as a freshman and said, you're going to play football. Actually, it was in the eighth grade, uh, the summer before. And I said, no, I'm really not. And he said, yes, you are, because I coach basketball and football. And I said, well, I'm going to play basketball, but I'm not going to play football. He said, yes, you are. I said, no, I'm not. I need to work part-time and make money. And I played junior high football, and I don't like it. I don't like walling around in the mud. I just don't like it. I'm not going to do it. I need to earn the money so I can play basketball. I'm the coach of basketball and football. This is a small town. Everybody plays football. And I said, well, I'm not. He said, well, you may not play basketball either then. I said, well, I may not. And he looked at me and he said something I can't say from the pulpit. <laughs> kind of a coaching phrase, something about being stubborn, but it was elongated a little bit more. I said, no, I'm not that stubborn. I just don't enjoy it that much. I'm no good at it. I don't want to spend my time doing what I enjoy. And I need to work. Get out of my office. Yes, sir. Never said anything about that again. I did play basketball on the varsity all four years. I know that was back when little white men who couldn't jump could still play basketball. <laughs> but you see, those words hurt it, he said, but he couldn't make me do what I knew I didn't have to do because my parents had instilled that kind of confidence in who I was. And you need to be looking at your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, your neighbors, and their children. And you need to be sure that you're instilling in them the kind of love and concern for them in their lives. That you can be there so that they know they are valued. That they matter. I didn't say spoil them rotten. In fact, you can't tell them, teach them that they're valued unless you bring discipline in with the, that love. But you've got to let them know you love them. You've got to remind them that God loves them. Because every child at some point becomes an adult unless they go to see Jesus sooner. And along the way, they all have their awkward years, their rebellious years, their struggling years. Not everybody tells them what we used to tell our girls when they would say, well, I like that person, but he sure likes himself a lot. He'll star on the football team, he'll star on the basketball team, whatever. And we would say, well, find a good nerd. You know, Find yourself a good nerd who studies and who works. If they don't work, run away from them. If they know how to work and they know how to study and they're smart, trust me, it'll make that football captain look really bad probably in years to come. And I'm not going to say how that turned out since one of them sitting in the audience and I don't want to brag on him. <laughs> He's not all that nerdy, but, you know, he does work a lot. You're not successful enough.
You're not important enough to be a member of this congregation. You should find a church more like you. You're not powerful enough to be the chair of a committee. God says, yes, you are. You're so valued by me that you're suitable to anything you put your mind to doing. Because I don't look at those kind of things. I look at power or I look at leadership. When God looked at David, he looked at his heart. And that's what we need to do as well. So the next time you remember those voices, check your baptismal certificate. Oh, I know you don't carry yours around, but it should be right in here. And it should be right in here. It feels like you don't like me, but God does. It feels like you don't think I'm a very worthy person, but God does. I know I'm a worthy person because God told me I was, and he died for me. So any of your little words that you want to run me down with or anything you want to say about me that's uncomplimentary, go ahead and say it, but it won't change a thing about who I really am. Because I'm a child of God. And someday, I'm going to be in heaven with all the other children of God. I hope you're there too, but I know I'm going to be there. That's the message we need to give to the people in the streets to the people in the homes, to the people that thinks the church doesn't care. We need to give them a vision so bright of love and experience of personal humility that they can't do anything but want to follow us to the place that taught us how to become that way. Father God, parent of us all, lover of us all, Help us become the church you call us to be. Help us become the people you've enabled us to become. And help us to continue on the journey, never giving up until surprisingly we wake up in your presence to see Wes's smile and the millions of other saints that we've known who died before us. Let us live as Wes lived, as Jesus lived, burning up our lives in service to others, teaching them about love and mercy and grace, sharing with them what you have shared with us, that they are beloved by God. May it be so in every church and in every Christian home. It can only come, Lord, when we humbly come to you to receive everything we need so that all righteousness can be fulfilled in us step by step year by year until we reflect the face of love to everyone we meet may it be so and may it begin now in Jesus name we pray